A couple of weeks ago, we started a series in Acts, and uh, then we had Mother's Day uh, last week. And uh, we haven't spent any significant time in the book of Acts for, for probably about four years. And I've been praying a lot about what we should kind of head into over the last few months. And um, I recently had an opportunity to, to listen to um, the reading of Eugene Peterson's um, I guess it's like a biography that he's written. You all know Eugene Peterson wrote The Message translation. And, um, and it was just interesting that he made a comment about pastoring a church which he started over a period of 40 years and the importance of retelling the story of Acts because it's our story. It's the birth of the church and, and all of that. So that's why I thought it'd be good for us to head into this again. So let's dive into God's word, knowing that a couple of weeks ago we, we looked at Acts chapter 1 and we spent quite a lot of time talking about the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's work in our lives and how he relates to us and who he is. And one of the things that we discovered from God's word is that the Holy Spirit speaks to us through his word. So knowing that, let's dive into God's word and see what God would say to us at this time um, from, from this book of this Acts. So why Acts? What is Acts all about? Well, well some have argued that Acts should really be called the Acts, of the, the Acts of the Apostles. I mean, sure, we hear quite a bit about what the Apostles were doing uh, at this time. However, many of the Apostles are hardly mentioned throughout the book. Acts certainly doesn't even begin to give an account of, of what the Apostles were doing in the, uh, in the first century. Um, I, I received an email during the week um, and it was, it was talking about, about how, how the various apostles died. And I hadn't really kind of ever, Marge sent it through to me, just looking at you know, how tradition says these various guys died. And I thought, yeah, I didn't kind of know that. Well, it's, it's good to know that Acts is not just about what the apostles were doing because there's heaps that we don't know about the apostles. Some have suggested that the book should really be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. I guess there's a good argument for that. Fifty times in Acts the Holy Spirit's mentioned. Yet there are 11 chapters in the book of Acts where the Holy Spirit isn't mentioned at all. So whilst the work of the Holy Spirit is obviously an important aspect of the book, it doesn't appear as though Luke's primary reason for writing was to talk about the Spirit. Others have argued that Acts is about the, the geographic expansion of Christianity, that that's what it's actually all about. However, if you ask that question of the book, why is it that, for instance, we know that Christianity made it to Rome many years before Paul got there, and yet it doesn't talk about that at all? I mean, you would have to think if it's about the geographic expansion of Christianity, when Christianity got to Rome, the centre of the known world, you'd think that would be worth mentioning, wouldn't you? But it's not. It's not mentioned at all. There's no chapter about how Christianity got to Rome. So why did Luke write Acts? What is the fundamental underlying message of the book of Acts? Well, I really like what uh, celebrated New Testament scholar N.T. Wright. If you see anything written by N.T. Wright, read it. This guy knows what he's talking about, in my view. Anyway, N.T. Wright says, Acts is all about what Jesus is continuing to do and to teach. The mysterious 
presence of Jesus haunts the whole story. He is announced as King and Lord, not as an increasingly distant memory, but as a living and powerful reality. A person who can be known and loved, obeyed and followed. A person who continues to act within the real world. I think that's great. The central theme of Acts is that God was doing something in the world in Jesus Christ that could not be stopped by anyone or anything. No barrier, no obstacle could prevent the good news about Jesus from spreading out to every corner of the world. And you know what? We are part of that story. We are. This is our story. The story of Acts is your story and my story. It is our story. Because the word of God, the good news about Jesus, spread from one region to another. It spread from one people group to another, from one language to another, across continents, across oceans, across time. Each generation has passed the baton on to the next, telling their kids and their grandkids and their great-grandchildren about the love of Jesus. That's why we've got to do this. That's why we've got to be committed to sitting under God's word regularly. That's why I say to parents, you have got to, you have just got to bring your kids along to church regularly. You've got to bring them along to hear how much God loves them and to hear the story. But you know what? If you just bring them to church, they won't get it. You've got to do it at home. You've got to make God's word and the living and real Jesus, not some distant memory, but King Jesus. We've got to make him real and alive to our children today but to our parents and our friends at work. You know, I think it's interesting that when you read that word Lord in Acts, you know, all the time, if you're reading through Acts, you'll come across the word Lord. When you read it in the Old Testament, it's in all in uppercase letters because that's because the original word was Yahweh, the, the nameless name, in a sense, of God. I am that I am. In the Old Testament, when you read Lord, it's saying Yahweh. In the New Testament, when you read Lord... It is generally kyrios, the Greek word kyrios, which just means King Jesus, Lord Jesus. In the New Testament, when it says the Lord, it's saying Jesus, the God-man Jesus, who lives in us through his spirit, who is alive to us and present to us. We are part of this story. This is our story. Jesus, after rising from the dead, spent 40 days with his followers, walking with them and teaching with them and eating them. You know, I think sometimes we need to really let that sink in. You know when you're talking to someone at work or at your golf club or whatever, and they go, oh, you know, how do we know that he really rose from the dead? I mean, it's really. One good thing to remember is that when Jesus left, there was about 120 people followers of Jesus. Now we have here, looking around, probably about 110, something like that. It's a group of people like this. 
After Jesus' earthly ministry, this is what it was. There's this many followers of Jesus. Now, I want you to think about this. When Jesus appeared to them, it wasn't as though we're all sitting here together and someone goes, hang on, I think I saw Jesus. Everyone's going, no, you didn't. No, I did. I thought, saw him look around the corner. He's alive. And everyone went, yeah, he's alive. Now, it wasn't like that. I'll tell you what it was like. Suddenly, Jesus was there amongst them. Just imagine that. You have seen him put to death. You've heard people say, like Mary, I saw him at the tomb. You've heard people say, I saw him on the road to Emmaus. And everyone's going, gee, that's amazing. But no, for 40 days, Jesus kept appearing to them. And if he came in here, this group of people is about this size, he came in and it wasn't a case of, oh, there's Jesus. It was Jesus came right in amongst them. And he's standing here going, hey, you touch me. Come on. Come. You don't believe I'm real? And then he says, is there anything to eat? And someone says, yeah, that'd be right. He's always hungry. Always wanted to eat. Jesus ate with them. That's what it was like for those first believers. And that is a very good testimony, isn't it, to the reality of Jesus' resurrection. That for an extended period of time, he met with them, they could touch him, they could hug him, they could hear him, they ate with him. It says in Acts 1, it says, on one of the occasions when Jesus was with them and he was having something to eat with them, he said to them, probably whilst chewing, do not leave Jerusalem. He wouldn't have done that. That would be rude. He would have swallowed before he spoke. Brendan. <laughs> he, would have, he would have swallowed. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait. Wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptised with water, but in a few days, you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit. So for a further period of 10 days, just think about this. He ascends to heaven. He says, wait. They wait for about two weeks. They wait for 10 days. Small band of followers, only 120 of them in total, waiting in Jerusalem to be baptised in the Holy Spirit. You know, Pentecost, the word we throw around today, but Pentecost comes from a Greek word, Pentecostus, which simply means 50. It's just their word for 50. 50 days after the Passover, the Jews celebrated the festival of the first fruits of the grain harvest. Think back to Easter. That's about 30 days ago. Okay, so it's in a few weeks' time. That's how long we're talking about. In a couple of weeks' time, it will be 50 days after Passover. It was the anniversary. I want you to get this. It's very important. Pentecost, 50 days after the Passover, in the Jewish calendar, was the anniversary of the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. I think that's very significant, isn't it? It was the annual celebration, the anniversary of the giving of the law on Mount Sinai and the covenant 
which the people made. They all came together and they made a covenant before God to be his people. He said, this is how you will live. And he gives them the law. It's on the anniversary of that. That time, shortly after the Israelites were taken out of slavery in Egypt, God gave them ten commandments through Moses. And every year they celebrated and renewed the Mosaic covenant with God. The significant thing, because it was a big celebration every year, the significant thing was that God-fearing Jews from all over the known world were in Jerusalem on that particular day. They weren't there the weekend before. They weren't going to be there the weekend after. But they were there on that day, on that weekend. Let's open the word of God to Acts chapter 2. <coughs> Excuse me. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed like to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? How then is it that each of us hears them in his own native language, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Ju Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues, amazed and perplexed. They asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. The whole 120 were all there together. It seems that they weren't in the temple, but rather in a house. Probably Timothy's house. Probably Timothy's mum's house. That's probably where they were. They were probably in the house where Jesus had celebrated the Last Supper just a couple of months before. That's probably where they were. And it says the whole house where they were was filled with the sound of a violent wind. It's hard to know too much about this wind other than to say that it appears that everyone there heard it. The house was filled with the sound. This wind was believed to represent the Spirit of God and it came upon them with power. You know, I, I've never heard of anyone experiencing that before, but I had this mentor, Seton Arndell, who has passed away now, but he was a missionary in New Guinea for years and years. And, you know, he, he says that for a long period of time, Baptist missionaries were trying to get the gospel contextualised into the culture of these New Guinea tribal groups. And he said, we just couldn't, couldn't seem to crack it. We couldn't do it. And then we were praying and praying. And then one day, there was a big gathering, a tribal gathering of people. And 
He was there. He was, it's not like he's telling someone else's story. He was there. And he said, we were praying and there's all these native people there. And he said, suddenly the clearing where we were sounded like a violent wind was swirling around. But he said the trees were dead still. No one could believe what was. It was just this rushing around. And he said, suddenly the most unlikely people would stand up. And he said it was the women, which in their culture was very surprising. But the women were standing up, many of them, and they started singing songs which became the worship songs of the New Guinea Christian church movement. And people stood up and literally just became missionaries who said, I will go to this people group. And on that day, he said, all of the the Australian-American missionaries ran and hid. He said, we did. We were so petrified of what was going on. But he said, there were people who we had buried in the previous week who were up on these stands where they were left to rot up there. It was part of their culture. And that we would take them down in three months' time and they would have another burial. He said, people we had buried the previous week came down off their funeral pyres on that day. I'm looking at him going, are you serious? You really were there? And he says, oh yeah, mate. Let me tell you, in their culture, I said, how do you know they're really dead? He says, part of the burial process is that a hand is shoved into the body. That had been done. Whoa! He said, no, no, mate, this was serious. And he said, that was the birth of the church. Really, the local contextualised church. And he, he wrote his doctoral thesis on this stuff. I've actually read his, his writings on it. This is years ago, in the early 70s. I thought, that's the only time I've really heard a, a modern Christian saying, oh no, God still does some pretty amazing things like this. Anyway, this is what's happening. The birth of the church. There's this violent wind rushing around. And they were, they were expecting God to do something. And then he did. He did an amazing thing. And they were baptised with the Holy Spirit. And John, John the Baptist has said just a few years before, I baptise you with water, but one more powerful than I will come. The throngs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So, so John foretold what Jesus would do, and then Jesus reiterated this with his command to wait, and now it had happened. The sound of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house. I have to say to you, for me, that would be enough, as it was for Seton and his mates. That would be enough. If there was the sound of a violent wind rushing around in here, and no one's hair was blowing around, I'd be ducking for cover. Just imagine what it was like for those 120 people there that day. It would have been kind of terrifying. I want you to try to put yourself there, all there together, they're praying and singing, just like we've been doing this morning. 
Suddenly there's this noise rushing round them and then silence as there appeared a flame of fire. Maybe it was just kind of hovering there in the middle of the group because it says that it's separated. In other words, it must have been together. There was this flame and then it separated and a little flame landed on every person's head. Just imagine that. I reckon lots of people be saying, have I got one? Have I got one? Everyone else has got one. Have I got one? You would, wouldn't you? You'd be just going, what is happening here? What is going on? Now I want you to notice that it says, verse 4, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other tongues. I mean, who knows what that must have been like? I mean, did they all just start babbling in other languages? I mean, was there suddenly a room full of people who couldn't understand each other? Was it just mayhem? Was it uncontrolled mayhem that day? Uh, Probably not. The reason I say that is that that would seem to work against the fact that the scriptures say that when God does something, it is normally orderly and peaceful. The the, the Apostle Paul, in his great passage on the use of the Holy Spirit-given gifts, says in verse 33, 1 Corinthians 14, For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. And I can't imagine that on this occasion, at the birth of the church, that there would have been total havoc and disorder. They were filled with the Spirit. Let me tell you something. When you, you are never, ever more in control of your faculties than when you are filled with the Spirit. You are never, ever more sane, more as you should be, than when you are filled with the Holy Spirit. They were filled with the Spirit, but for what reason? Remember, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago. Acts 1, 8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. They were given power to be Christ's witnesses. Being filled with the Spirit, I'm, I'm sure they were all suddenly filled with an incredible desire to share the good news with everyone because the Holy Spirit is a spirit of evangelism. The Holy Spirit deeply longs to share the good news about Jesus and if you have 120 people filled with the Holy Spirit, you've suddenly got 120 evangelists. Have you not? People are saying, we've got to tell people about the love of God. And in that moment, I think they they were kind of changed from being a group of fearful followers of Jesus who had all deserted him on the night that he was betrayed to being the church. They were now the body of Christ. They were now unified in this overwhelming desire to evangelise. And they had the power to do it. They now had the spirit. But being organised and sane, I imagine it may well have suddenly occurred to them why the Spirit came on that particular day, on that particular day of the year. I can imagine that probably Peter was sitting there thinking to himself, Oh God, 
You have done something clever. How are we going to reach the whole world? You've brought them all here. They're all here on this weekend. And then someone might have said, yeah, but hang on. How are we going to speak to them? I don't speak Arabic. And suddenly somebody starts speaking Arabic. And he goes, I didn't know you spoke Arabic. And the other bloke goes, I didn't either. Then someone else starts speaking Mesopotamian. I didn't know you spoke Mesopotamian. I don't. But you are. <laughs> I mean, it is an amazing opportunity, isn't it? They must have thought to themselves, hang on a minute. We have people from all over the known world. It says Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, goes on and on. Have a look at the map. Have a look at this. We just click Gary. Here we go. That's where they are, the red dot. And I put the place names where they are. Just mute all the other mics, mate. Everything else. That's where they were from. It's amazing, isn't it? That God brought people from all over the known world to Jerusalem on that day. You see, all these people, people from all over the known world, they weren't in the room at that time. It says that there was a house, the following verses say, Peter preached the gospel and 3,000 people responded. There were not 3,000 people in that house. Somehow between those verses, they got organised and they went out into the streets of Jerusalem. They got out there and they started sharing the good news. On that day, 120 people, the very first expression of the church, the body of Christ, boldly stepped out into the streets of Jerusalem and just started telling people about Jesus in their own language. The Egyptians were probably hanging out together, the same with the Phrygians and the Libyans. Remember, they're all God-fearers. They're all people who've come to Jerusalem to worship Yahweh. They're God-fearing Jews from all over the known world. And the disciples would just have gone up and started talking to these groups of people. They would have gone to where they were. And they probably asked them to come to a mass rally in the temple courts. It had to be somewhere big enough to, to fit everyone in, somewhere they could all hear and see what was going on. And later that day, they all came. Thousands of them came. Thousands of them came to hear what these 120 people, this little group of apostles and followers of Jesus had to say about what God was doing because many of them would have heard about what had happened in the previous weeks and months in Jerusalem. And I won't read it all this morning, but Peter got up and preached this first Christian sermon as a member of the body of Christ. I won't read it all, but you'll need to do that at home. But the end result, 3,000 people decided to follow Jesus. 3,000 people responded to that message. More people came to follow Jesus from that one sermon than through the whole public ministry of Jesus himself. That's staggering, isn't it? 
After three years, Jesus had a small group of followers, around 120 people, following his death and resurrection and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They had power for what? Evangelism. And 3,000 people responded. Verse 38, Peter replied, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and from all, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Many with other words, oh sorry, with many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accept his, accepted his message and were baptised and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. But what does this mean for us living today in 2014? Does it mean that we must seek the baptism of the Holy Spirit as a separate thing to conversion? Do we need to seek a second blessing? Well, I have no doubt that if we were to go around the room this morning and ask this question, we'd probably get a whole variety of responses. In my experience, there was a time when I was convinced that there was a second blessing and that I needed to be baptised in the Holy Spirit. And... In fact, I asked God for that blessing. I had an incredible experience of God at that time. And I remember it, I really do remember it as clearly as though it were yesterday. I was 17 years old. My family was holidaying just across the lake there at the entrance. We were staying in a motel room. And I'm reading this great book. And it's talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I felt God's presence just with me. And I prayed that, if this was of God, I just wanted this thing. And I tell you, it, the only way for me to describe it was I felt like I was in the hand of God and I was being lifted up through a waterfall of, I don't know, his love or something. It was just this amazing experience of God. You know, this is the danger with experience, that for some time after that I say, no, I've been baptised in the Holy Spirit. I, I experienced something... <coughs> <coughs> so therefore, that's, that was going to shape my theology. Well, today, I'm convinced that the teaching of Scripture, because you see, that's what we've got to come back to always. Not my experience, because my experience is so muddied by emotions and feelings, but really, we need to come back to what does the Word of God say, and our experiences kind of add to that in a way, but... Really, we start with the word of God. I'm convinced that the teaching of scripture is that on that day, on the day of Pentecost, Jesus baptised the church in the Holy Spirit. He gave his spirit to the church. And in the same way that Christ died once for all, and we enter into the, all the blessings which flow from that event in history when we're saved. I believe that scripture clearly teaches that exactly the same thing happens with regard to the Holy Spirit. At the moment of my uh, sorry, at the moment of my salvation, at the moment of your salvation, I am baptized into Christ and I receive the Holy Spirit. Now that doesn't mean that I won't receive further fillings of the Spirit. In fact, we are commanded to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. But that's what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesians. He said, "Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. 
Instead, be filled with the Spirit. It's like he's drawing this, this parallel between, hey, if you drink a whole lot of wine, this thing kind of comes upon you, doesn't it? It fills you up and then it races along and what we, it's just alcohol in your stomach. Your body's just trying to process this alcohol and it rushes upon you and it rushes up into your head and it comes upon you. He's saying, yeah, no, don't do that. That just leads to debauchery. But rather be filled with the Spirit and be continually be being filled with the Spirit day after day after day. That's not saying that you weren't baptised in the Holy Spirit when you became a Christian. You know, over the years... Pastor Keith and Louise and I have talked a bit about our own experience of the Holy Spirit with each other. And Keith has a great way of putting it, and I'm sure he would have said this to to many of you over the years. He says, it's not how much of the Spirit you have, but rather how much of you does the Spirit have. That's the issue. It's not how much of God's Spirit you've got, but how much God's Spirit has of you. I love that. I like that. That resonates with me. See, God gives us his Spirit completely. We have God completely. The Father held back nothing when he offered the Son. The Son held back nothing for us when he died in our place. And in the same way, the Spirit is not withheld either. We all have the Spirit if we are in Christ. The question is, how much of you does the Spirit have? And we are to seek the Spirit in fullness. In other words, we are to seek to give ourselves fully to the Spirit of God. On the day of Pentecost... The 120 disciples who were baptised with the Holy Spirit were all filled with the Holy Spirit. The baptism and the fullness were simultaneous. Now, an important question to ask is, so did it continue? Did the fullness of the Spirit continue for those people? For those individual people? Well, obviously it didn't. Because one only has to read Paul's letter to the Corinthians where he had to clearly lay out what was of God and what was not with regard to spiritual things to realise that though the believers were baptised into the Spirit at their conversion, they were most definitely not full of the Spirit at the point when Paul was writing that letter. It's an unhappy fact that much of this low standard of Christian living that we see today is further evidence of this reality that whilst we are baptised into the Spirit, we are not necessarily filled with the Spirit. And yet this is what we are to seek. We are to seek the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Now, we can't actually make God do anything. Only God decides what God is going to do. And in this regard, we can only rely on what he's promised. Jesus has promised to give us the Spirit. Jesus has promised that. So therefore, it is left to us. What are the things that we can do which lead to the fullness of the Spirit being lost? That's the question, isn't it? Because if you're baptised into Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit. He doesn't hold anything back. He he gives it to you. 
So there's a fullness of the Holy Spirit coming into us. But what are the things we can do which, in a sense, cause that situation to change? Well, the fullness of the Spirit is lost when we resist him as Kyrios, as Lord. You know, as I've said to you many times before, it has struck me that many people think Kyrios, Lord, is his name. It's not his name. It's not. It's who he is. <laughs> it's not his name. It is who he is. And that comes with a whole lot of implications in our life. We lose the filling of the Spirit when we resist him as Lord of our lives. Have a look at Acts 7. We read about Stephen standing before the Sanhedrin. Now, Stephen was pretty much the first martyr for the gospel after Jesus was killed. He's standing there before the very men who had put Jesus to death. And Stephen says, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. And just like the Israelites who were God's chosen people of old, we too can be stiff-necked people who, whilst being saved, resist the Holy Spirit's control in our lives. God gives his spirit to those who obey him. That's what it says in Acts 5.32. It says, We are witness of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, who God has given, get that, to those who obey him. I'll make no bones about it. If you feel as though you lack Holy Spirit power in your life, if you, if for you, you say, I know I'm saved. I know I'm saved because I struggle with sin and I, and I don't want to sin and I know that God's Holy Spirit does live in me because I struggle with sin and I don't want to sin. I know I'm saved, but I struggle to live in Holy Spirit power. Let me say to you, the first place I would suggest you turn is to ask yourself this question. Am I being obedient to the Holy Spirit's voice in me? What areas of my life are not given over to the Spirit's control? What areas of my life are just not given over? I mean, that may be a hard question to answer. Maybe ask yourself this question. When was the last time that I sought the Lord's will on anything in my life. That will tell you a lot about whether he is Lord of your life. When was the last time you really actively sought the Lord's will for your life? When was the last time that you asked him about your career? When was the last time you said, is my vocation the vocation that God has for me? Or is there something else that he would have me do? I mean, it's easy to think that you are where you should be if you simply base your decision on how well you're doing. 
In my life, it has been... It's actually been the situation where the further I've got from doing God's will, the better I seem to do in a worldly sense. Just because you're doing well in your current vocation doesn't mean you're where God really wants you to be. That's how the world works, but it's not how the spirit works. What is your calling? You know, I believe we are all called. If you're called to be a builder or a doctor or a farmer or a mechanic, that is great. Do it with all your heart. Just make sure that you're convinced that you're being called to do this. See, we need to seek the Spirit's guidance in every area of our lives. See, he not only lives with us, but in us. If you're a believer, your relationship with God's Holy Spirit should be your closest and dearest relationship. You know, for those of you who are married or have been married, can you imagine what your relationship, your marriage would be like if you didn't discuss where you were going to live? That someone in the marriage decided, we're moving there. And you went. I mean, what would that say about your marriage? It's exactly the same with God. What's your relationship like with the Holy Spirit if you don't talk to him about things in your life? It says in Romans 8, those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. If the Spirit is to be our guide, then we need to stop resisting his leading. Resisting the Spirit's leading results in you losing his filling, and that means losing the Spirit's power. See, the, the fullness of the Spirit is lost when he is grieved. I mean, this is hard to understand, what well, it was for me. You need to think, throughout the ages, the church has understood that the Godhead, made up of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, is a a society, a family of love. God was in community before he made anything. God was in community with himself, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the personal love that unites the Godhead is the Holy Spirit. Think of the Holy Spirit as like the heart of God, who literally pours out the love of God into our hearts. Have a look at Romans 5. Verse 5, it says, And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. When you think about love for a moment, what is love like? Love is sensitive and love can be hurt. Is that right? The very nature of love is that it can be hurt. The whole risk of love, of saying, I love you, is that the other person won't say, I love you back. That's the risk, isn't it? Tied up in love is the risk of being hurt. The Holy Spirit, as love, cannot fill a life which hurts him. God is love. How do we hurt the Holy Spirit? Well, Paul gives us the answer clearly. 
Have a look. Ephesians 4, verse 30. Do not hurt the Holy Spirit. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. I want you to notice the strong language. He says, get rid of. At another point, he says, put to death. Get rid of. These things which grieve my Holy Spirit. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. We grieve the Holy Spirit and therefore he can't fill us when these things are features of our lives. Bitterness. You cannot be filled with the Spirit when you hold bitterness in your life. Let me ask you today, what are you bitter about? Is there something deep within you where something has happened to you in your life that you deep down you're just bitter about it. Yeah, we often talk about bitterness as having like a root of bitterness. I think that is so true. It gets gets in deep. And we become good at covering it up and this kind of scab grows over the bitterness and it's just there under the surface. You think no one sees it, but it's just so close to the surface. Let me tell you something. The Holy Spirit last Like two weeks ago, we talked about the Holy Spirit. He searches the things of God. The Holy Spirit knows the heart and mind of God. And he is God. Do you think the Holy Spirit doesn't know about your bitterness? He knows about your bitterness. And it grieves him. Are you bitter towards God because your life didn't really work out how you had hoped that it would? I think people, more often than not, are just bitter with God. You cannot be filled with the Spirit when you, you hold bitterness in your life. What about rage and anger? You cannot be filled with the Spirit when you are angry. Most men, I've found, have a bit of a struggle with anger. That's how we're wired. I've said this to you before because the scriptures say it. Rage and anger are unacceptable in the life of the Christian and they will prevent you from being filled with the Spirit. It is unacceptable to just to say, no, that's just how I am. I'm a Christian, I'm a Christ follower, but I really get... Oh. No, no, that... He says, get rid of it. Put it to death. Brawling, slander and malice. You cannot be filled with the Spirit when your life is characterised by those things. You know, it's easy to think of brawling. Oh, that's a manly thing. No, I think brawling, this kind of brawling, tends to be more of a woman thing. Brawling, slander and malice. If men suffer from anger issues, 
Ladies, sometimes slander and malice might be your thing. Get rid of it. Put it to death. You cannot be filled with the Spirit when your life is characterised by those things, but you can turn it around. Not only are we to give control over our lives back to the Spirit, but we are to... And he gives us the antidote. You see, verse 32, he says, it's almost like he's going, but rather... Instead of doing these things, which you naturally just want to do, do this. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Be kind and compassionate. Be kind and compassionate. And it says, forgive each other. No, I can't forgive. I, I know we should forgive, but I cannot forgive that thing because no one has ever had anything as terrible as that happen to them. This person didn't respond to my text. I put a post on Facebook and no one liked it. I don't want to trivialise it, but... You know, we can all think no one else has ever had anything so terrible done to them. Open your newspaper and have a look at what's happening to people around the world. You see that poor lady in a country just north of Australia this last week who was accused of adultery. You know what her sentence was? To be gang raped. Oh, and then, because she was gang raped, they knew she'd committed adultery, so then her sentence was that she'd be publicly caned. Lots of people have bad things happen to them. Sometimes we just think, gee, is this really worth getting so bitter about? Both of these things, when we resist the Holy Spirit as Lord, when we grieve him, lead to a quenching of the Spirit's power in our lives. Do not quench the Spirit. Now, I think it's interesting that at the birth of the church, the Spirit appeared as fire and then separated to little flames. Jesus said, a smouldering wick I will not snuff out. A bruised reed I will not break. And yet here we have Paul saying, do not quench the Spirit's fire. In 1 Thessalonians he says, do not put out the Spirit's fire. In the King James he says, do not quench the Spirit. Now I think it's, it's lovely to think of the Spirit's power as being like a flame which glows and warms and burns and spreads. It is, it's a lovely image, isn't it? That the love of God, when the Holy Spirit lives within us, just kind of warms the next person and they warm the next and they warm the next. And before you know it, the whole congregation is just warm and toasty with the love of God. And our community gets drawn to the warmth of the fellowship. But if we keep quenching the spirit, it doesn't work like that. See, the flip side is that when we refuse to allow him to be Lord in our lives, when we allow things like bitterness, anger to rule, we quench his spirit. 
I want to challenge you this morning to stop quenching the Spirit in your life and to be filled with the Spirit. I believe all of us, to some degree, resist his Spirit. For me, it makes it really easy to think of this filling of the Spirit as my life as being like a whole, like a house full of rooms. And we invite God's Holy Spirit to come in and we say, come on in, Lord, come into the lounge room because it's, the lounge room's always tidy and it looks really nice and we have all our best stuff in the lounge room. And we might even have the bedroom door open. Oh, you can see and you can see this nice bed and everything. And then you have the kitchen and, oh, come on into the kitchen, Lord. Come and eat with me. But then there's this room upstairs in the attic or, you know, down in the basement. Oh, don't go down there, Lord. No, don't go there. Now, that's where all the mess is. Now, that, no, we keep that door shut. You'll, you'll notice that that door has a few bolts on it. Six, you know, no one's getting in that room. Because that's my secret little room that only I go into. And when I'm in there, you're not really welcome, God. That's what life can be like. You see, you can paint this lovely picture of your life, but if there's bitterness about something, it's like I've got this locked room where there's bitterness. And I just kind of like going in there every now and then and I play the tapes and I hate that person for what they did to me, but God's not going in there. Think about that, the filling of the Holy Spirit. Is he, does he have open access into every room in your life? Or are there locked rooms? That's what I think this is about. For me, it's easy to think of that, to think of the locked room. To be full of the Spirit is to give him access to all areas of our life. So let's pray, let's bow our heads and pray. And I want to give you, I guess, an opportunity now to do some work with God. That just in the silence of this time, knowing that God's Holy Spirit, who we've spent this morning talking about, is here right now. He is alive and well and he is here. And if you're sitting here this morning thinking, I can't believe that this message seems to be just to me. It's just about me. It's like God speaking to me. You're right. I, I don't think any of us is here by accident and God's Holy Spirit does want to speak to us and maybe he's just pointing out there is this room in your life that I don't have access to as I should have because I want to come in there and I want to redeem that part of your life. I want you to know this, that God doesn't want to come into that room of your life and destroy it. He doesn't want to knock that part off the house. He wants to come in and fix it. He wants to come in and redeem that part of you. And he wants to make that part of you like Jesus. He wants to fill that room with love and warmth and forgiveness and acceptance and just purity and good stuff. So what is the Holy Spirit 
bringing to your mind now? I say this often because I really believe it's true. If you're hearing any words in your head now that are saying everything in your life is rubbish, every room is a nightmare, don't listen to that voice. That's the enemy. Listen to the voice that's saying, I love you, I'm living in you, we're fixing things up, and I just want to deal with this room. What is that room? Lord Jesus, I pray that by your spirit you would allow us to unlock that door. That you would allow us to hand you the key and say, look, I can't even unlock it, but here's the key. Can you unlock it? Can you come into that room and do what only you can do in that part of my life. The challenge is that once we do that, what happens tomorrow and the next day and the next day? God's word says that we need to be being filled with the Spirit. Jesus calls us to take up our cross and follow him. In other words, we pick up our cross, the means of our death, and we follow him wherever he takes us. And every day we put to death the desires of the flesh. And every day we hand in the key. And every day we say, Lord, that room, it's still, I want to lock it. It's, no, you go in there and you, every day we do this. And it won't be all that long before you won't even think about that room. There'll be something else that God will be working on in your life. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the story, the journey, the amazing history which has led to this point where we stand here today as your people in Gorakin on the central coast in 2014. Lord, we thank you for our story and we know that it ends with you and it never ends. It goes on and on and on. And that is the hope we have. Bless your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.